Welcome to the J3 University Podcast. Each week, we bridge the gap between science and in-the-trench experience for physique enhancement. I'm your host, John Jewett. Let class begin. Welcome, everybody, to the J3U Podcast. And today is the appropriate time, the holiday season, to talk about elevating blood glucose so luke and i have both got a lot of questions in the forum around what do you do about managing blood glucose your enhanced mail it's creeping up like should you already had stuff in place should you have been uh now like pull back on gear change food like what do you what do you do around blood glucose and, and does it does it even matter it does and the person to talk about today was Alex Keichel. So he's with the the prep coach is his business. And he's written extensively on pharmacology of all types of different things that we use in bodybuilding that are fun, nutrition, training. Um, he's well-versed. So Alex, thanks so much. Great to have you on the podcast. Definitely, man. And I wore my best shirt for this, by the way. It's a Mandalorian shirt. And <laughs> I did my hair, so I'm ready for it. I know yeah. you you came well prepared. I'm like, oh, I feel like Luke and I are looking rough over here. And Alex is <laughs> looking, uh, you know, f- five stars. So, um, yeah, no, like I said, don't feel bad. I'm up at 3 a.m. I get some work done. I work out, get the kids up, make food for the day, make sure everyone's ready to go. So I do 10,000 things before it's even like 7 a.m. So I'm always just a morning person, you know. There you go. Are, are you still, um, now you, are you still competing? At all, Alex, I'm not familiar with the competitive side of you. Yeah, so I am probably the world's worst bodybuilder competitively. Never <laughs> looked good. I was on my track to look my best ever for the 2020 Arnold Classic in the amateur. Um, was so happy. Had shredded glutes at like three or four weeks out. And then in the background, I had a gallbladder problem my entire life. It always gave me GERD and acid reflux. Actually, any Barrett's esophagus. So to the point where you got the um, actual lining and the scarring in your esophagus. Mm. And so gallbladder gave out at like three weeks out, went through all of that, got out of the hospital. Then the next week was whenever COVID, uh, the shutdowns happened. So it was like, okay, looks like competition's not happening then. And since then, it's just been slowly focusing on being a better father, husband, growing the business, and then just getting better in the background at everything. And so stage is always going to be there for me. But right now in life, it's really family and business because you know how it is with the business. And then whenever you have kids, it just it just builds and builds and builds. And so the primary focus is on them and then try to do this as healthy as possible. So the stage will be there eventually. But I'm also really getting back into boxing like I did in high school. So I've been doing that for about three years again, a little bit of cycling. So kind of like the hybrid athlete right now. Um, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, I always think about after bodybuilding, what would I, what would I get into? Right. And it seems a lot of people go into like, I did martial arts as a kid like that, or like boxing or something like that would, would be a great time. But like, like you said, it's uh, this, this lifestyle, it takes away so much from relationships and even the business. Cause I think like, man, the longer I stay in off season, like I can be so much more productive in business, but uh, <laughs> on the same, on the same side of that, you know, it's uh, c- competing is part of the business in a sense. Um, but yeah, so you've been focusing just on the the business side, and that's really what we want to chat with you today is the the coaching side with clients, and also what you kind of written extensively for. And um, you just came out with the book, sent it over to us on exogenous insulin, which uh, I'm sure that that's going to be coming out soon, right? Already out, yeah. It's already out. Excellent. Yep. It was a great read. It's the most extensive thing I've ever read on insulin. Uh, yeah. So I would encourage everyone to to check that out. I've read through like 
research studies and stuff. Of course, those are very extensive, but hard to digest for, for a lot of people. But um, your, your book does plenty of in-depth for the people that want to go there, but also pulls it back to have great application takeaway for the guys that are just, um, you know, competing or any athletes. Right. Um, so great read, but oh yeah, I want to set the premise up for like what we want to talk about. So, you know, Luke and I have get people that um, in the forums, but also clients, um, male enhanced, enhanced bodybuilders could be female higher end, um, pushing food up, monitoring blood glucose and blood glucose is getting some higher readings fasted and this could even be postprandial sometimes in some of the athletes um so i want to start the conversation there just around you know for probably give some premise of how you like to monitor this in in your competitors or or if if you do i imagine imagine you do um and maybe we started off there and then we can go into like what what to do Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So it's cool. Um, whenever you get rolling down this overall conversation of insulin sensitivity to insulin resistance, there's a big difference, first of all, between what's in the literature and what happens in real world. So I'm all about reading the literature, reading the books and see what actually happens in application. Cause I don't care what a research paper or a book says, if it doesn't happen whenever we're an athlete, then it doesn't really matter. So if we look at that in gen pop, if you term insulin sensitivity, it's the proper utilization of glucose via insulin, right? Like that makes sense. We look at diabetics, like, okay, that makes sense. With athletes though, they have a higher amount of hemodynamic flow. So the flow of blood and oxygen to get to the heavily muscled architecture of that athlete. We have all this extra muscle tissue. All that extra muscle tissue brings with it more ribosomes, more actual mitochondria, all these things that change how we flux energy and substrate as a whole. So substrate being not just the macronutrients we eat, but also the oxygen and all that good stuff. So now we look at this athletic world and it's like, hmm, it's not just about glucose and insulin. It's about all of our macronutrients, our nitrogen, our lipids, our glucose, and how not just insulin interacts, but how everything interacts with it. So if we peel back that layer and just understand the basics of getting things into the Krebs cycle and the bleeding that happens there, it's all a mismanagement of ATP that causes insulin resistance. So for athletes, it's really looking at the inability to flux and properly store all of our macronutrients, right? Like that makes sense. We are heavily muscled athletes because this conversation is mainly for hypermuscular males, right? Because it would change on other categories and everything. But if you're heavily muscled, where do my, where, uh, where does amino acids, nitrogen, where does that live? In myocytes, in muscle cells, right? So all the nitrogen we eat as heavily muscled men should be going to muscles. All the glucose, all the carbohydrates we eat should be going where? In intramuscular glycogen. And then some fueling of the process throughout the day. But if you're a good athlete, you should really be good at something called parasympathetic beta oxidation. All that means is and just break it up. So parasympathetic, when you're resting, like right now, we're all pretty parasympathetic. I'm probably less because I get excited when we talk about this stuff and the sun's kind of blinding me. So kind of trying to fight that off and everything. Um, but relaxed state and using fat for fuel at that relaxed state. So if you're exercising, we're exercising for what? Two to four hours a day, max, right? Depending on what period of the time mm -hmm. frame you're in, so off season, prep, whatever. The other 20 hours, what are you doing? During those parasympathetic hours, those 20 hours, it should be all about recovery. And how do we want to recover? We can pick it from the food we take in, which is going to be part of it, but also the substrate we're actually uh, releasing from our own body. So do we want to pull from intramuscular glycogen or adipocytes? Do we want to pull free fatty acids out of adipocytes? 
You ask anyone, you're going to say, let's go with adipocytes. Let's improve that ability to pull fat out of fat cells, right? Because then we can fuel this process throughout the day and only get leaner, build muscle tissue. And to a point, you're obviously not like recomping year round, but a good athlete's going to be good at parasympathetic beta oxidation. And this is interesting because if you look at a top IFB pro like yourself, you guys do this just naturally. Your genetics are to that degree, and that's not taking away any hard work, but the greater your genetics are, the better your energetics and systems are in, uh, and are able to do this in the first place. Whereas the lesser your genetics are, the more these things, you know, you really have to get into weeds and worry about. Again, not taking anything from a work ethic standpoint, but that's why you see someone on the Olympia stage or whatever, top five in the world, they don't have to worry about that because endogenously their mitochondria are so proficient. They don't got to worry about that. They can do a bicep curl, get the same oxygen flux as you or me or, you know, Luke and me or whoever who needs to go and do extra aerobic work. So this is someone that's might be more uh, metabolically flexible, right? This is what's been. Exactly. Yeah. That is exactly. Give me one second. I'm going to close this. Yeah. Line. Yeah. We can, we can adjust the, we can cl 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 uh, clip this out. <laughs> you look blinded, man. There we <laughs> go. Yeah. Try not to get too ridiculous. Um, <laughs> so anyway, we have the definition of what insulin resistant and insulin sensitivity is for athletes. We now understand that it's the energetics that's changing where we're trying to do things. So now we get into the conversation that sets up for the rest of this conversation, which is energy systems. So we're not looking at the basic textbook definitions of energy systems. To me, this is really more the athletic energy systems. So what we see in actual application with someone who's using drugs, because it changes in the drug and uh, chemically induced world. So we essentially have four different things. And you guys can interject, by the way, at any point. I just, I get on my rants and tangents. <laughs> you just hold up a finger, tell me to shut up, and I will. Um, so we have these four energy systems. Okay, we have that parasympathetic beta oxidative system, which is you nasal breathe, walk outside. Okay, you're sitting here talking. That's really driving there. We have the low intensity cardio, which I kind of term as prolastic cardio. Did you understand why you're doing that low intensity cardio? It is your heart. It's the elastic portion of your atria. So blood gets pumped in. And why do people get left ventricular hypertrophy and cardiac myopathy? That blood is hitting a stiff atrial wall because they're not doing their low intensity cardio. So it's prolastic in the sense that you're doing this low intensity cardio to give, to allow the heart to expand with all that pressure coming in so you can keep up with deadlifting a thousand pounds or whatever, because again, hypermuscular, strong people. So we have that low intensity spectrum. That's kind of the second. Third one, everyone's great at this, weight training. That is a world where we are fluxing oxygen. We're having a lot of cellular damage. We're doing all these things and it's myological muscle-based failure. Not saying that it's not intense, because it is. If you're a good athlete, you're going to be training intensely. But if your lungs are giving out before your muscles are, you're not doing it right. Your lungs can be, obviously, pressed. You can be hypoxic. But the whole goal for hypertrophy and anabolism for us muscular-based athletes is really drive the muscular failure. Fourth energy system is the opposite. So lung and oxygen-based failure. That's the high-intensity kind of sprinting work and things like that. Which is funny, though, again, in the hypermuscular realm of bodybuilders, if you do the Wingate sprints and everything with your legs, what happens? Your spinal cord gets taxed. You're like, I do one of those. I can't squat for a week. Like it just doesn't happen. So what do you do? Upper body rows. That's why that's actually really kind of helped me with my boxing work and everything. The rowing work, the striking work, you can do the arm ergometers. You can do all these different things to still cause the lungs to fail and still flux oxygen, but not have issues and inroads with recovery as a whole. And again, as the genetic food chain goes up, 
Certain people can get that oxygen flux and stress on the lungs just by weight training. And that's where the genetic conversation kind of skews everything. But we're looking at these four energy systems and fixing uh, overall insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance starts with those. So we always say you have to fix those four things first, and then you can have the conversation of drugs, of nutrition, of all these other things. So I'll stop there and we'll dive into some questions. Yeah. So with, within these four energy systems, you're, uh, this is probably a, a baseline. I imagine you're setting up with your athletes of a certain amount of, for one, getting into a parasympathetic state, also having some type of low intensity work done some level of cardio and then some degree of weight training. So for that male enhanced athlete, what, what is, what is the kind of baseline look at? Obviously you're going to have a spectrum, right? Um, someone's that like super high food that has that genetic elite mentality, like probably won't need a lot of a cardio in potentially, but some, right. Just like you mentioned, as you want for the heart health benefits. So someone like, is this more of a, a almost a prophylactic setup? Like we need this as a baseline to move food up, move drug up to where they can tolerate those higher amounts and stay productive. So what does that look like on an application standpoint for as a cardio step and weight training or high intensity cardio? And how, how do you move that along the spectrum uh, as you need? Yeah, definitely. So weight training is the most important thing for bodybuilders because we care about getting bigger. So that's the primary goal. Even though it sounds like we're talking about doing a lot of cardio, it's more the different modalities, more so than just doing cardio every single day. So in general, if we could start off with taking your weight training protocol, trying to find out when you need more recovery, when you have more energy in the tank, things like that. It could be as simple as something like walking outside for two to three days per week, something like that. It could be the low intensity cardio, maybe twice, maybe three times, and maybe one hit session. The hit session go up to two, maybe come down to zero, depending on the person and going back to the specificity of the athletes. But it can start with basically doing two a day sessions every day to make it simple, or at least six days out of the week where weight training one period of the day and maybe a walk, 10, 15 minutes doesn't need to be long. That walk outside isn't just stressing that parasympathetic system extremely well. If we're nasal breathing, the cool thing about that is it's changing our ability to handle carbon dioxide ratios. So our carbons, the fat on your stomach that you gain in the off season, right? It's a bunch of carbon strained together. We're breathing in oxygen. It is through that nasal passage, improving our ability to tolerate carbon dioxide. So we get better at attaching carbons or oxygens rather to carbons. And we therefore can lose a lot of fat during that period. And again, that's with a 10 minute walk outside. And you also have the photonic exchange of the sun the photonic exchange of the sun, those rays coming down, that's the thing that goes into the liver and causes the receptor and drug to spontaneously uncouple. So it literally improves your ability to handle your androgens in the first place just by getting sun exposure. So a 10 to 15 minute walk outside a couple days a week, maybe 15, 20 minutes of low intensity cardio two or three times a week, start there and then kind of work up from there. You'll be able to tell with your autonomics because as you get larger, like you know yourself, if you're working with someone who's 280, 340 pounds, somewhere in that range, maybe even higher if they're, you know, in a strong manner, that's a different conversation. But the bodybuilder who's that heavy, their walk outside, it's going to be sympathetic as heck initially, right? Because that's just a lot when it's, it's hard to move around. So we're trying to get their autonomics where we want them to be. So your heart rate, your heart rate variability. And heart rate variability, by the way, the Fitbit, or not the Fitbit, um, thing on your finger, or a ring. Oh, yeah. The O-ring is awesome, 
but the HRV metric itself doesn't tell us as much as what HRV is supposed to be, which is our ability to get our heart rate up extremely high and recover, bring it down extremely fast. So although those HRV numbers are good, it's not what we stand on, especially when you're hypermuscular, it's more your ability to recover. So you have a bodybuilder who maybe is doing a lower, um, uh, lower volume, higher intensity training split. How quickly do they recover in between those high intensity bouts? That's a good way to gauge what's going on there from an HRV perspective. So it's improving and starting off with a little bit of cardio because weight training is the goal, improving those autonomics. And I hate saying staying healthy because at some point when we take drugs, it's not going to be healthy, but we're trying to do it as healthy as possible. Because unhealthy? Can improve the what's that? <laughs> less unhealthy? It's, yeah, yeah, less unhealthy. Like that's the goal. Then we can have a longer career. We can do things all. We're not going to die younger. Like it's just all good. And the better we can get those autonomics, the better we can dismantle those drugs in the first place. So the more growth hormone or insulin or androgens you can take, or the less you can take and get more out of it. So it works on both sides. And that more goes back to the genetics of the person. So it's helping from multiple different spectrums. On those on those baseline metrics, like we we clearly have evidence of like low volume hit improving cardiovascular metrics, specifically within like the CVD population. Yep. Are you titrating that in as you get deeper? Is that how you're using that prophylactic strategy as far as like Correct. all season? Okay, because I'm using that to improve that baseline response to the energy systems as we get deeper. I um, just wanted to see if that was kind of like where you're implementing that as well. Yeah, that's exactly what you want. And there's always going to be that tipping point. And some people, um, I can remember a lot of pros when they're going from that um, low level pro show to like an Olympia or a top big pro show, wherever they're just training so much from a weight room aspect, having so much alactic glycolytic work in the gym where it's like, we can't handle any hit because they just don't need it because that's where they are. So we take a momentary reprieve on the high intensity work for a prep, maybe bringing in more in the off season because that's really the time whenever dysfunction occurs. Most people are pretty healthy during prep, even though there's usually more androgens in play, there's not the excessive body weight that's in the off season. That yeah. whenever people are walking up the steps and you hear that, that heavy breathing, that's slipping electrons. That is one of the worst things for your health to generate negative oxygen, which is free radicals, which then causes all the health problems that people have. So it's trying to manage oxygen, but also trying to manage everything from a muscle building aspect as well. Yeah, I think it's important to get these things in in place to a degree, because I think a lot of guys, you know, it, it already fades off pretty quick after prep until then that happens where you're huffing and puffing, you're like doing your leg set, you're completely gassed and you're like, oh man, I should probably do some cardio by now. It's like, <laughs> you should probably should have had a, a, a lot earlier. And then it's like, you have to completely backpedal and pull everything down, bring body weight down to kind of reset. Um, and this stuff probably needs to be in place way before that even is to occur. So you can get to where your place where you're, you're, you have the machinery set up to handle those higher body weights. Yeah. And, and that's exactly it. And it's not killing yourself with cardio in the off season, but doing enough to at least get the health cascades rolling. It's not, not just the health, but again, if you understand everything we just talked about from an energetic standpoint and talking about subatomic particles, like we did with the electrons, if you improve these energetics, again, you're going to dismantle your drugs better. So if you're the person who can get everything in the world out, 200 milligrams of testosterone, and you're one of the low-dose guys who just responds that well, well, you're going to get even more action out of that. If you're the person who can take you know, multiple grams and you're the person that needs to push like that, but you have to manage the negative side effect profile side of things, you're going to be able to push that again, but not have the same side effect profile. 
because you're improving the enzymatic cleaving that's going on from, again, dismantling these androgens or peptides or depending on the category that we're talking about. So the walks outside and all that fun stuff, it's not just about staying healthy and improving autonomics. It's about building muscle tissue faster, getting more out of our drugs. And that's usually the cell you have to make whenever you're working with a higher muscular-based person. It's like, they don't care about the health so much sometimes, but hey, this is gonna get you stronger. This can help you build muscle tissue. So not only are you gonna be healthier, you're also gonna build muscle faster and potentially have to take less drugs or handle your more drugs better. So you can play with the conversation a little bit. Yeah, and, and you know, within that conversation, you're like, do you find other things that are popping up on athletes that you work with that are running into like bottlenecks in the off season like this? Maybe it is, um, I, a lot of guys that I work with, it's usually like sleep takes the hit in the off season. Like they just build in more work um, and on top of training and everything to like catch up because they, when they're on prep and then sleep, sleep suffers. But you don't think about that, how that translates throughout all the day into, you know, managing um, substrate utilization, insulin sensitivity and resistance. Um, is that something that you find or is there some other standouts for, you know, keeping productive in the off season? Yeah, no, that's a massive one. The whole sleep recovery conversation is massive because when we sleep, so we go to bed, okay, we have this cool release of growth hormone, all these different kill adults, we have a release of melatonins, and this kind of plays in the glucose conversation very well. But we have this nighttime period where you're recovering systemically, so neurologically and myologically, so, you know, the brain and muscle. It's so cool because at 2 a.m. we have the biggest spike of growth hormone and thyroid hormone. So we have this spillover into the morning of this thyroidal growth hormone-based environment where you have the initial spike of cortisols and all those catecholamines and things like that. So literally overnight is your most anabolic time of your day. So not only from a growth and recovery aspect, but the ability to clear amyloid beta plaques and things that build up in your brain from dysfunction, from being sympathetic all day, those adrenergic receptors, think about any stimulation, more stimulated you are, you're the person who drinks a cup of coffee all day. You're always doing something to be stimulated. You're scrolling through Instagram, getting that dopamine release and all that stuff. That's all getting cleared and recovered at nighttime. So it spills over into the next day and even furthermore, and this is where it goes into the glucose conversation very well. Those fasted glucose levels matter, but only so much. Highly androgenic males have that massive 2 a.m. growth hormone thyroidal spike. And what does growth hormone do? it's releasing lipases and glucagon, which is putting what? Energy into your bloodstream. So if you check your blood glucose levels at 4 a.m. versus 7 a.m., there's going to be a different you know, flux there because of that. It's called the dawn phenomenon or uh, uh, early riser syndrome, depending on where you're actually reading that. Athletes and hypermuscular males taking drugs very commonly have these elevated fast glucose levels. And everyone likes to jump and say, oh my, like, that's the worst thing ever. I woke up and I had a 97. Um, ideally, everyone goes 90 under, 80 under, depending on the person, whatever. But look at what's happening with the responsiveness of your insulin. So as you're hypermuscular, what's going on throughout the day? So the post-prenal uh, post readings, even furthermore than that, what I care most about is actually checking blood work. So we're looking for HbA1c, C-peptide, and plasma insulin levels. You can have high glucose levels and low insulin levels in the background and it not be bad because glucose is acute, whereas these other markers are more chronic. The high elevated plasma insulin levels are awesome for anabolism, right? We have hyperinsulinemia and hyperaminoacidemia. So eating a ton of protein, taking insulin, eating a bunch of carbs, that's awesome to build muscle, right? But over time, those insulin receptors 
receptors get less receptive to the insulin. And then they're kind of like sitting there like, yeah, I don't want to do this. Like just keep pumping out more insulin. I, I don't need to do anything because I've been stimulated so much. So we're looking at those HbA1c markers as well, which is the average of three months. Generally, we don't like averages, especially in bodybuilding, but for something like this, it's at least roughly saying, hey, this is roughly where you're at. If we're like 5.4 or under, I prefer 5.0 for most people, but 5.4 is kind of the top end. Under that, you're pretty good. We have C-peptide. So whenever we look at a beta cell, right? So we have pancreas. Zoom in there, we see this cool, beautiful little beta cell. This is where the insulin is being produced. So we essentially, and you know this from reading the ebook, from mRNA all the way into the ribosomes into the actual rough endoplasmic reticulum to the Golgi, then it spits out this cute little vesicle that's bundled with insulin and C-peptide. That basically floats around, binds to the cell wall, dumps, dumps out the C-peptide and insulin into the bloodstream, and then amylin comes in to help with beta cell proliferation and things like that too. But that C-peptide marker is a good way to monitor what's going on with insulin values, especially when you're taking exogenous insulin. So this goes back to what we just said beforehand, where we're looking at your fasted glucose levels and it mattering, but not you know, blowing your wad and seeing a 97 on the glucometer and being like, I'm going to be insulin resistant tomorrow. It doesn't work that way. Post-workout, you're supposed to be insulin resistant. Post-workout, that's a beautiful time where we have this biological crossing where you have to be insulin resistant to adapt, to make a change. So post-workout, you're sympathetic, right? You have all these acetyl groups from breaking down all that acetylcholine during the workout. You have a high heart rate, high ventilation. What do you do? What's the first thing you do post-workout? You calm down, you relax, you eat your food, maybe you take some drugs, maybe you watch some TV, you get very parasympathetic, you start clearing the seal groups, you start driving recovery then. That period is the shift from insulin resistance to insulin sensitive. Again, it's like AMPK and mTOR. Everyone loves mTOR and bodybuilding, hates AMPK because that, that stops it. It's a yeah. cyclical <laughs> process, just like insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity. So said a lot there. Sorry. Yeah. yeah let me, yeah, let me uh, inter interject here. So you brought up a few things. So about monitoring fasted blood glucose and a lot of times in, in the conversation, like you have guys, you talked about a, you know, normal physiological release of growth hormone in, in this mid sleep period. A lot. And, and, and how that could be beneficial for run recovery. That's your main recovery point. Now, a lot of people are rationalizing timing growth hormone at night because of this very reason, right? You could have high bioavailability growth hormone and have its actions when you normally have a physiological rise. So, but timing growth hormone at night, that's that effect could still spill over to, to morning time where I'm seeing like athletes having higher fasted blood glucose. Now, if you have someone either situation, right? They're just having hypermuscular, they have a rise in glucose in the morning, or they're taking growth hormone at nighttime. You see this glucose coming up 100, maybe a little over 100. You're like, okay, is this really an issue? Would you then go and test someone postprandial to kind of see if like, hey, throughout the rest of the day, you are getting back into this, you know, sub 190 level? Um, or is that when you would pull labs and say, let me check C-peptide and fasting insulin? How do you um, go about like assessing if it's okay or it's not okay? Yep, you hit it 100% right. Fast glucose is easy to do. First thing in the morning, it doesn't encumber your day too much. 
run into problems there, go to post-preannual, see what's going on there. If there's still problems, then you get the blood work done. That's a little more invasive, obviously, and causes people to have to change up their schedule and things like that. But you do it in that line. So again, you can see what's going on. And the growth hormone conversation as well, nocturnally, it really does depend on the person and biologically how they metabolize growth hormone. For me, that's my drug of choice. I can take 20 IUs and I swear I only get healthier. I don't take that very often. I only did it once, but I'm that individual who I was just made to take growth hormone. That's not everyone. Some people could take half an IU and their blood glucose goes up to 130. And then HP1C over three months goes up to 6.2. Like it depends on the person. My favorite statement was this, I was made to take growth hormone. <laughs> I'm going to get a shirt made, but I actually get a tattoo of it on my back. Oh, you know? yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So uh, with that with that being said, like uh, what what are usually your numbers? Like is, is it the 100 that you usually cut off your athletes with? Or um, I, I guess how, how far for someone that is hypermuscular? Like would you say like until like, all right, we really should pull abs? Or do you let that range push up a little bit? Or is there a, a pretty hard cutoff? Gotcha. Context. If my athlete is hypermuscular eating 1,500 grams of carbs, 1,000 grams of carbs, it's almost par for the course. I yeah. hate saying that, but there's not much you can do. Your pancreas, and in that situation, using insulin to pull the burden off your pancreas so it doesn't have to pump out and work all day. So in that scenario, you're kind of like, okay, we can't be here for very long, but let's just monitor things anyway. If you're generally, though, I say we would like to be around the 80s. If we're 85s lower, that's really, really an awesome place to be, but you still need to see what's going on with your insulin and your C-peptide in the background, mainly insulin. It's really the glucose and insulin equation that you really want to keep an eye on. So plasma insulin wise, if you are during a push phase, maybe there's lantus in the background, a high amount of androgens, 15 to 20 plus is awesome for building muscle, not good long-term. So you're doing that for the blasting phase, end of your off season where calories are higher, you're a little bit fatter, things like that. But chronically, you want to be under 15. So something like a six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 is a pretty good place to be. So we're checking the fasted glucose, 85 and under is really, really awesome. Creeping up to 90 or 100, assess the situation. If they are that muscular, if there's a genetic history involved, things like that, that's when you kind of start saying, okay, do we pull back? When are we going to pull back? Because there's going to be problems if you don't stop it soon. Yeah, to be in the 80s when you're pushing that much food, it, it's uh, it's a lot to ask. Yeah, Usually, my guys exactly. are floating like in the high 90s, if not right around 100. But it's like yeah, how, how long fine. how long you want to sit there for? Um, that's that's part of the question. But uh, another thing that brought up like is shifting growth hormone dosing around. Like I, I've had guys who are they're taking growth hormone at, at night, right? And they do have that elevated fasting. I'm like, hey, don't take your growth hormone night. Let's just text what your fasting is. And so and it's a very transient effect with growth hormone. Like you remove that and then their fasting is like perfectly fine. It's like, okay, well, we haven't checked like fasting insulin, but um, do, do, you, do you ever have that be the case with your athletes and that that changes how you would time growth hormone in that athlete when you see that? Yes and no. So if we take growth hormone before bed and they wake up and have a fire, a higher fasted glucose and we pull it out and fast glucose goes back to normal, then growth hormone is real and it's doing its job, which is cool. Yeah. So that's when you have to post prandial and say, you're good throughout the rest of the day. It's the growth hormone dumping glucagon and lipase into the bloodstream, dumping glucose, dumping uh, all those free fatty acids. And that's perfectly fine. That's the whole Dawn phenomenon syndrome going on there. Because even if you're not taking growth hormone, hypermuscular, taking androgens, there's cross stimulation on everything. 
So even if you're taking whatever androgens in the off season at whatever dosage, that can cross stimulate all those growth factor based cascades and cause your IGF to go up, which is going to do the same thing. So even though just because they're higher and heavily muscled and taking androgens, that can still have the same effect in the background with that early uh, or that nocturnal into that morning shift with that big dose of endogenous growth hormone and thyroid hormone at 2 a.m. I guess it's the area under the curve is probably going to average out to be the same because you think about, say, your timing growth hormone twice a day, took it in the morning, maybe around training you'd have larger uh, glucose rises throughout the day on top of meals, right? Um, then at nighttime, you have that shift coming down a little bit lower. Uh, average that out, it probably might be the same as if you were timing your growth around at night and not coming back down just as low. During your meal time, you probably just wouldn't be going quite as high. Now, however, would it be, you know, you, that's when you could have insulin strategies around that, right? For managing what well, you're timing your growth hormone during the day and having insulin throughout that time too, that at nighttime, maybe you were able to get down, uh, down lower. Now, again, it's probably, if it all averages out, you're probably having the same effect. We're talking pretty nuanced there. Um, but, uh, any, any strategies around that in, in insulin usage, um, that yeah, come to mind for this, for this type of situation. Yeah, so um, the easiest introductory ones, not only to get the performance and body composition benefits, but also the downstream health benefits, it's really going to be peri-workout first and foremost. It's an easy time to take where we have all these positive cascades. So we take insulin pre-workout. It's recycling ATP during the workouts. So you can work out harder, longer. That contraction of doing extra bicep curls, that calcium flux is going to improve insulin sensitivity for the next 24, 48 hours. So Indirectly, insulin is helping it for a genomics or a chronic period of time. We have the ability to enhance partitioning. So the hemodynamics we talked about before of moving blood, oxygen, nutrients into the muscle, taking amino acids and saying, hey, go to myocytes, go into muscle, right? Like that's what insulin does. It's telling things where to go. So in the pre-workout setting, you can potentiate the workout. Post-workout, it's driving more positive storage. Again, saying all these extra amino acids go to myocytes. All these extra glucose molecules go into glycogen and fatty acids. You know what? I'm pulling down blood glucose, so I need something in the bloodstream. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to actually dump um, free fatty acids into the bloodstream. So you're taking it in that post-workout period to drive up recovery and a little bit of beta oxidation as well, going back to the parasympathetic beta oxidase world. Once you have that, then you're looking at the times of your day or even your week. Are you someone that has like a high carb day or a free meal? I call it a, a deflux meal instead of a cheat meal or a free meal because it's fluxing dopamine. That's why we're having those. You have a burger, a cheeseburger, and some fries. You feel good. That dopaminergic release causes enhanced recovery on top of the higher amount of calories. So it's a two-for-one hit. That's why the cheat meals work so well because it's that dumping of dopamine. So it's picking foods you really like and enjoy. At that meal, why not throw in a little exogenous insulin? pull off the burden of the pancreas, having to pump out so much insulin to get to work, pull down your glucose levels over that next, whatever, 16, 12, 12 hour period, depending on the form of insulin and do all of the positive recovery cascades that you need there. We also have to remember in that high fat scenario, because that's a big one that everyone talks about using insulin and exogenous fats and things like that, or, or yeah, exogenous, I guess that works. Um, yeah. In the hyper, right? Yeah, yeah, coming from the outside source. <laughs> um, in the hypermuscular male. So let's say John Jewett and your best friend who's got you know 50 pounds, spare tire in his gut, go to five guys. You guys have cheeseburgers, right? Standing in line, you're getting a bicep pump. Your friend's standing in line, he's getting nothing. He's texting on his phone, his gut's getting bigger. Like 
it's different, completely different environments. You guys eat the cheeseburger, your body says, because you're hypermuscular, oh, I'm going to go ahead and I'm good at parasympathetic beta oxidation. So I'm going to use this fat to just kind of stave off my ability to utilize the glucose and the nitrogen. So it's throwing those fats onto the beta oxidative wheel that's spinning for your day to fuel your daily activity while allowing and sparing your nitrogen, your protein, and your glucose, your carbohydrates to be stored in muscle. That's what's happening to you. So you eat that cheeseburger, you get all that additional bolus of sodium and fluids. You just get pumped from it. You just look better when it's done in moderation. Your friend just adds carbons to his gut. He just gets fatter from that cheeseburger. So it's the environment that it's introduced to. And that's why athletes, hypermuscular athletes can use exogenous insulin and benefit a lot more from having, you know, X, Y, and Z meals with that. Was saying that you, this is probably the starting point around fast, a faster insulin around pre post training. Do you also shift like your diet set up around that? Do you shift a, a lot of the carbohydrate? Cause I've seen diet setups where, it's the majority of carbohydrate are shifted. Now, obviously if you're, you're getting to a food state, that's like a thousand grams of carbs a day, of course it's going to be spread out, but do you have a, a, a higher percentage around training based around uh, using insulin as a primary for pre-post? Before I answer that, Luke, you okay? I haven't heard from you in a while. Yeah, I was actually, mine was going to be similar because I was a little <laughs> surprised to hear are you not going alongside a longer acting basal to pull load off the pancreas um, on that initial implementation? Because I, I could see that like initial implementation being a combination of the two, which is kind of like the direction I typically go, like a prophylactic deployment of longer acting alongside a peri-workout faster acting deployment. Yeah. Okay, cool. So we'll answer both questions. So the first one was, oh, uh, biasing your carbohydrates peri-workout. Um, context again, right? That's got to be our friend here. You got a thousand grams of carbs per day. People will put like 500 grams of carbs post-workout. People get bloated. They don't feel good. All of a sudden their glucose levels are 150 for three hours. Like we don't want that. So there's nothing wrong with biasing your carbohydrates pre-workout. You need to do that as an athlete anyway. That's when you need it. That's when you need energy pre-workout. We need to drive anti-catabolic cascades during the workout and fuel ATP recycling and post-workout recovery. So it makes sense. You should have the majority of your carbohydrates peri-workout, but the majority depends. You're eating 200 grams of carbs. I mean, what's the majority? Are you going to have all 200 grams of carbs that enough to throughout the rest of the day? That's a very viable option. Some people, again, going back to lifestyle and just how they feel that may need to be tinkered. If you're at 1,000 grams of carbs, where are you going to do that? You can't do tons pre-workout because then it'll blow up too much intra. You do a good amount intra, but then after 100-ish grams of carbs intra, kind of becomes superfluous. You don't really need more than that to a certain degree, um, depending on the session duration. And then post-workout, you can just shovel a bunch in with your insulin. But again, how much can you handle before it becomes a digestive burden and just has just as many negatives? So you would, you would bias carbohydrates, just like any athlete out there, whether you're a bodybuilder, CrossFit athlete, you're working out, glucose and nitrogen proteins, those are your two friends, and fats as needed in certain situations where maybe you're a person who dismantles insulin, exogenous insulin so quickly, so your blood glucose drops, either change how you're taking your insulin, maybe go sub two instead of IM, or add a little bit of dietary fats to slow down transient time of glucose levels. So does that kind of answer your question? Oh yeah. Yeah. I was seeing it. What, what your approach was on how you kind of handle it generalized. So we can, uh, yeah, jump, go ahead to, you know, the, a strategy for ba a basal insulin, if that's or something that already be in place, like Luke was asking. 
Yeah, yeah. So Lantus. Lantus is awesome. All these insulins, uh, insulins rather, were modified to do different things. So insulin is not insulin. Novelin R is structure identical to human native insulin. Humalog, they went to the B28, B29 position, switched to proline with the lysine, lysine to proline. And Lantus, they went to the H and D chain, switched to asparagine with the glycine, slapped onto arginines over here to the B chain, and altered the pHs and put in some other preservatives and things in there. But that is what allows them to work so differently. So Lantus, a basal insulin is awesome because what it can do is it can interact with these IGF and insulin-based receptors in a different way. The actual receptor and the molecule binding does different things. It's sending a different chemical signal over a prolonged period of time. So if we are going down the Atlantis conversation, it's more so used based on the individual in a couple different ways. So if you have the background pancreatic issues where blood glucose levels are always a problem, what did we say before? Glucose levels are high. If you're fixing that with insulin, that usually causes just as many problems because then you get your blood work done and you'll see, okay, glucose levels are manageable. Plasma insulin levels are 20, 30, 50, whatever number. It doesn't always work out like that. So the number you have to shoot for there is Lantus lower. Most people will start off with 100 IUs of Lantus or something like that to fix the problem. And that's where the problem lies. It's the dosage that really can fix the problem or make the problem worse. So as low as 10, 20, 30 IUs, somewhere in that range to begin, first thing upon waking. Remember in athletes, it changes. So the kinetics versus gen pop versus athletes, we dismantle Lancet so quickly. So by noon, if you take it at 6 a.m. by noon, it's pretty much gone. So we're trying to work in two dosages, but that's only needed depending on the actual total need for your pancreas and for your uh, blood glucose uh, levels and overall issues. So that's one way you could use Lancet just to drive that background health, just like you were saying, which that's a very viable option. It's always more the dosage where people run into problems. Then from there, you can even do something like on your higher calorie burden-based days, a high carb day, a deflux cheat, uh, cheat meal day, something like that. Maybe you bring in more lentils then to reduce the pancreas on the burden on the pancreas the entire day. So maybe that day, since it's infrequently, you can use the higher dosages and get away with it. The problem with lentils is that because of that receptor molecule binding interaction, that can lead to what we talked about before, that receptor saying, get away from your molecule. I don't want to deal with you. And your body is going to keep producing insulin with the extra exogenous insulin. And you're going to run into more, more insulin resistant problems. So that's the people you see it all the time in the off season where someone gains 50 pounds and 45 of those pounds is, is fat. That's usually the Lantus abuser. Maybe that's the wrong word, but took too much Lantus in the wrong scenario for too long. So Lantus is awesome to fix those problems, to drive up because it could drive up hunger in the background. It can be used to bring up lacking body parts. It can be used to, again, the health-based things we talked about. Used for a lot of different ways and it's more low dosage, higher duration or the opposite. So lower duration, higher dosage. Right. Did you have a follow-up around that, Luke? Or Yeah, it was, it was more so like, I'm not seeing athletes running the need over 25 really with like that longer duration thought process, lower dosage. And even with like the faster clearance, if I'm getting to the point where that's an issue, like deploying the faster acting in the afternoon, if that's like where the training window is. And so using those in combination to kind of moderate throughout the day based on like caloric load, where they're at and these kinds of things and where those metrics are, are, are being seen. Yeah, that's 1000% right. So we're having that workout period that almost never changes. That's always going to matter because what do we care about? Building muscle. That workout period should be the most important thing for the athlete's mindset. 
The other 20 hours of the day when the parasympathetic beta oxidative system comes on, that's when we worry about health and recovery. So you're completely right. So bias lantus to whenever you're not going to be working out and then have the shorter acting variants during the workout period. So you yeah. can use a cumulog subcutaneous or a novel in our intramuscular and they'll kinetically work the same. Yeah, exactly. Since you brought that up, we have to address it right away. <laughs> is uh, <laughs> Before I forget it, is the application around sub-Q versus intramuscular insulin, which I think people, if they were listening to that, they'd be like, wait a second, intramuscular insulin, like that's not something you hear of very often. So w when are you differentiating between its its deployment? Oh, we should talk about IV insulin. No, I'm just kidding. We don't do that. We don't <laughs> really do that. That, that is an option in the hospital. Um, so when we're looking at intramuscular applications of any drug, we talked about dismantling of the drug. I use that as a term to just say drug molecule gets broken down enzymatically faster. So enzymes come in, move away the bad stuff, put away the good stuff, whatever. It dismantles the drug to get where it has to go. So with insulin or even androgens, anything you put into the muscle belly, has higher hemodynamics, higher blood flow. That improves dismantling. That uh, metabolizes the drug faster. So if you're trying to get a drug to hit and act faster in the insulin world, you do it intramuscular. Subcutaneous, how much blood flow gets there? Do it into your, uh, your love handle. And do you ever get a pump in your love handle? No, no one's ever done that. I've tried, it's never worked. So you can pick the fattier areas to slow down the transit time of your insulin. So it's all based on blood flow. Blood flow is bringing water, it's bringing all these different factors to break these things down faster. So if we go and kind of backtrack, the big three ones are usually Epidra, um, Humalog, and Novelinar. So Epidra, you do it subcutaneously, works in basically five-ish minutes under that time, depends on the person because everyone's a little bit different. Humalog, about under 10 minutes. Novelin, about under 20 minutes when it's done subcutaneously. We do it intramuscular. Epidra is like a peak a second. It happens so quickly you can't even count it. The humalog is pretty much just as quickly, but we'll just give it a couple minutes, maybe five if you want to go there, um, depending on the person. And you'll know when you taste the phenol. So you get that medicinal taste right after you inject insulin. That's the phenol or metacresol or whatever preservative they have in there. The novelin injected in Shumuster is going to work just like the humalog. So that'd be anywhere from five to 10 minutes, depending on the person. So you can take your insulin based off of that simple thing. Now, you'll get into the conversation of do I inject the body part I'm working and on paper that would make sense because you get a better pump quicker or rather you're improving pump to that area. So you're improving dismantling quicker. The problem is these things are happening fast. By the time you get through, you know, your warm up sets, it's already deployed and doing its thing. So it's more trying to time, okay, when do I want to take my insulin and when am I working out? So ideally as you're walking into the gym, you're, you're feeling, you're tasting that metacresol or the phenol, whatever that preservative is, and you're walking into it ready to go essentially it seems like the the timing it does shift the kinetics a bit but the 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 logistics of applying that is a challenge and yep. that it probably comes down to probably just pref preference and exactly. sustainability of how you want to be applying this or it might be a convenience factor right i mean i know with a lot of insulins we can't mix other things with them as they could come out of suspension and and, and ha have some issues around that but maybe there's certain things that in combination you would be combining but that's a whole rabbit hole I, we, we don't have to go Heart there yet <laughs> but, I, I, I want to reel it back to something else you'd mentioned too before um is is talking about how you know we're always focused on mTOR stimulation and with 
uh, insulin, growth hormone, androgens, protein, like all these things. We're always, always worried about just trying to stimulate mTOR, but there is a flux of AMPK that does need to happen and it's beneficial for insulin sensitivity. And so we talked about insulin and growth hormone management and uh, also managing food and energy flux. Um, what about other prophylactics that could probably be in place like uh, M? Metformin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, that I, I swear I get the the such a fight on metformin for so many people, but um for you, yeah. in in this instance, like the the hypermuscular individual using androgens and growth hormone and, and also insulin, uh metformin's application around this. Now, this is a, a big conversation, but um you know, how how would you apply this within this individual? Would it already be in place? from the get-go of off-season or always? Correct. So first of all, I'll address the 1% of the population that'll hear this and say, John, Luke, you guys are a-holes. You, you know, I took my form and I just got smaller. 1% yeah. <laughs> or less people have a negative response to where their contractility in the gym goes down. They lose strength like crazy. I worked with some high-tier powerlifters where two or three over the years out of everyone I've worked with had negative issues with that from a powerlifting standpoint. So there's always someone out there that's going to have a negative response. Other than that, metformin is something to me that I believe should be put in the background for just about every athlete for a couple of reasons. First of all, we're talking about driving up positive partitioning. Again, throwing fats into the actual bloodstream, using those as energy throughout the day and storing glucose and nitrogen. What else does metformin do besides positive partitioning of glucose? It actually downstream modulates the LDLR, so the LDL receptor, and can improve your lipid panel. So cardiac functioning goes up, thereby indirectly improving insulin sensitivity and utilization of fats. So your metformin is doing so much more than just managing glucose. So if we're looking at it as a kind of background, because we have two things in the pharmaceutical world, so kinetic and dynamically, we have non-genomic action and genomic action. Non-genomic means right now it's happening, and then genomic is chronically what's happening over a period of time. Metformin can be a non-genomic acute player, but it's more the background player. So if we understand why that drug was meant to be in place in the first time and how athletes use it, it's a bookend concept. First thing upon waking, last thing before bed, and that's carrying the morning dosage carries you through the day, the night dosage carries you throughout the night. And what that's doing is enhancing positive partitioning of pretty much every nutrient you're taking in. Yep. So we are looking at starting off low because it does also positively rearrange your gut bacteria in a good way. For most people, some people get the runs and that can actually proliferate and upregulate bad bacteria. So some different spores and all that fun stuff. You're that person, drop it. Or you could try taking it all before bed. But there are some people that get that negative gut response. If you don't, start off with 250 morning, that good for a week, 250 at night, 250, 250. So you end up being 500, 500. Above that, there are some benefits for some heavier people, we'll say 300 pounds and above. But other than that, you're looking at about a gram doing all the benefits of the chronic actions of metformin. And like you said, that would be deployed prophylactically. So it's in the background, always managing how you're utilizing substrate. But keep in mind, for the hyperandrogenic male who has a lot of muscle, it's most likely not going to influence your glucose levels that much. It's telling you, it's being the guide to say, hey, let's go ahead and store things here. But if you actually check, and I'm sure you've seen this all your athletes with both you guys, put in metformin, glucose levels don't go down 20 points. They may go down a little bit. Some people have even seen it go up because of that liver contribution, but it's still doing positive partitioning. And that's what we care most about. Yeah, I think the other role, it's it's uh, re re reducing like inflammation in the body. And so if you were to check like yeah. a fasting serum insulin levels, like they would still be in a good spot, even though maybe glucose is elevated a little bit. And 
uh, also like other things that you can't measure around it, like uh, improvement in like neurotransmitters and GABA, like with metformin's usage. Uh, there, there's just a lot of other like health, like just glucose yeah. is one thing, but there's a lot of other positive benefits that it can bring about. Um, so, so sorry to sorry to interrupt real quick. Um, yeah. Talk about forming good habits, right? So the better you can form a habit in the gym, the better you can contract the muscle. The better habit you can form outside of the gym with your meals, with your relationships, whatever, the better you can be as a human. So look at your frontal cortex. There's a dopaminergic and serotonergic metabolism conversation that happens. So metformin can positively influence that metabolism of your frontal cortex in your brain to start improving your ability to get rid of bad habits and improve good habits. So just like you said, modulating neurotransmitters to all of a sudden be a little bit better and remember, oh, when I tweaked my pinky this way on that curl, I got a better contraction. Or last time I yelled at my girlfriend, it didn't work out too well for me. So I'm gonna remember not to do that. It's changing the metabolism of your frontal cortex so that you're forming better habits over time and kind of forgetting about the bad ones. Interesting stuff, right? Because what do you experience with high androgen usage, right? An alteration exactly. in neurotransmitters for the negative, like lower serotonin levels, high glutamate, neurotoxicity. So like that's definitely a, a prophylactic in that sense, but also like, I, I guess that's, that's a interesting topic as well. Like forming habits. I never thought of it like that. Yeah. There's some cool ones out there with dopamine and changing that entire habit formation conversation. Then there's the whole neuroplastic world. I do so much neuroplastic work with myself and all my clients because I'm all about we have the performance, we have the body composition goals we're going for. Everyone does that, right? I want people to also have a good life outside of bodybuilding. No matter what, we're getting you to your goals. We're getting you to stage. We're getting you peeled. We're building muscle. We can do that. Let's do these other things in the background to also complement your life. And it sounds, it might sound really lame, but ever since I started having kids, I'm turning into such a soft, you know, I want this world to be a better place and that people have more fun because like I'm living my dream every day. I want more people to be that happy. Happy you are, better progress you get, the healthier you are, like it just is all good. So there's a lot of neuroplastic work and things we could talk about later on too that's a different conversation. Yeah. Yeah, no, not lame at all. Like all of us are just trying to be the best versions of ourselves and, uh, you know, achieve that, you know, sing out our fullest potential. So I think I think yeah, anyone yeah. can get on board with that. But some some of the tools to put in place to do that, yeah, those, maybe they're just like looked at too benign or uh, silly, but it, it all adds up to something that's headed towards the goal for what we all all want. Um, yeah. And I, I know we're coming up close to an hour, but you know, one, one more thing to touch on around glucose. Is there anything else you see important to have in place around trying to set someone up to have the best management for insulin sensitivity, glucose management? I mean, we talked about a, a few things here, but anything else that would come to mind? Yeah, so I'll talk about two because we only have a couple minutes left, like you said, and it's kind of a drug-based conversation, even though we talked about energetics and lifestyle and things like that. Carnitine and DHTs. So DHTs are a big one. Now, it's going to depend, obviously, on you as an individual, your anabolic mapping that you've done. How do you respond? Are you the person who hyper-responds to testosterone? That has downstream DHT. Do you respond really well to your primabolins, your masterons? Do you respond better than the androlones? It's going to depend on the person, but if you are the person who can get away with taking some DHTs, DHTs are awesome. They're going to have a high amount of neuromuscular junction activity, so that presynaptic to postsynaptic firing is going to increase. What does that do? That increases insulin sensitivity. It improves gut overall motility. It improves how you partition nutrients. It actually changes photosensitivity, so you can get more out of your sleep with less 
whole bunch of things as well. But that insulin sensitivity conversation because of the neuromuscular junction change with DHTs is awesome. Some people get that from boat loading testosterone, depends on the person, how they respond to testosterone, on um, whether you're a higher, lower, a higher dose or lower dose or things like that. But definitely DHTs have to be brought into the conversation, number one. And then carnitine, exogenous carnitine is awesome. So if we look at, we go back to that post-workout period of transitioning from insulin resistance to insulin sensitivity, what you can have is specific and acute insulin resistance on the muscle cells themselves. So understand too, it's also geographically dependent. So who cares if you're insulin sensitive on an adipocyte? We don't want a fat cell to be insulin resistant. It's going to just pull more stuff in. We don't want that. We want our muscle cells to be insulin sensitive. So these are seal groups from a hard, if you are a higher intensity, low volume guy, the DC training type person, which is an awesome way to train, and you train that hard, you're going to have all this buildup of the seal groups post-workout, a way to clear those because the buildup there builds up insulin resistance on the musculature itself. A little bit of exogenous carnitine can clear those seal groups extremely well. You can place it other times of the day as well to improve the fluxing of all your macronutrients, but that's another big player to put in potentially with the free meals, potentially with your Atlantis, potentially peri-workout. You can use it a bunch of different ways. I think around that, like you brought up conversion to DHT or just using a DHT and, and uh, you know, estradiol has a pretty big role in, in glucose management as well. So yeah. it, it probably is a situation where, like you do want to bring up estradiol within your, your tolerable limit to also be partitioning. So I guess it depends for to st which way you really partition towards more estradiol or DHT, how you manage those compounds. And then that, that might guide how we're setting up cycle design around that too. Um, but yeah, all, all those were, were excellent takeaways. Um, we got more great. too. There's oh, I'm sure. Oh yeah. There's all like, <laughs> supplements, other food strategies. There's a lot to go down. That's just, just yeah. a, a small taste. I'm sure we could have you on for episode after episode, Alex, and just keep I going down the rabbit you. hole, um, to, uh, to bring this back to what, what I want, you know, people to be able to like dive in more to your content. Um, if you could just tell them like where you're really active on and, or, or also guide them to your, like your ebook and where they can get that at and talk about more uh, insulin usage. And I know you have a few other books out too. I got the somatropic Bible, an 85 page book about growth hormone. So many things you don't even care about placental growth hormone. I actually went onto acromegaly forums and paid people for their blood work. So I could see how high IGF levels could get in an acromegaly world. I do these things because I just genuinely love education. I love learning. I know it's probably a little bit illegal to probably do that to pay people for their <laughs> projects. But I, don't I don't care. It is, it's interesting. So you can go to, um, God, I don't even know my Instagram actually. I think it's Alex underscore dash Kickle, K-I-K-E-L, and then the prepcoach.com. Go there and I post up everything to those two places, mainly Instagram. I post up videos all the time because I love education, trying to help people for free. Um, all my eBooks, I have carnitine, growth hormone, pharmaceutical directs for athletics, a PD periodization course, a mentoring program, kind of all the above at the website. So check that out. Don't check that out. As long as you're happy, I'm happy. <laughs> and we'll put it all in the show notes too, for people to, yeah. to access you. So um, great conversation, Alex, and truly appreciate you taking the time to come on. I know you're, you're busy with business and family and coaching. So we do truly appreciate the time. I appreciate you having me on, man. I was going to try and bring Apollo, my newest boy, my third baby in, and kind of show him off for the camera, but my wife wouldn't let me. So. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm not ready for that. <laughs> well, hey everybody, this is J3U. Appreciate y'all tuning in, and we will talk to you all next time.